0: The talk is about valuing the liberating process that we're all on or the lotus and the mud. The lotus flower is a beautiful flower and it's a symbol that's used as a a metaphor for the spiritual awakening process. The lotus flower, as most of us know, is born out of the mud and it grows out of the mud. Human beings are born in this human world. And we do the meditation practice to free ourselves of suffering or the mud. And it's by actually experiencing the mud uh, that we liberate ourselves. It's a very important part of the journey. So we usually first have to be able to recognize that mud is happening (laughs) that we do suffer Uh, and hopefully we come to this process of opening out of compassion out of caring for our suffering and others suffering so hopefully we come to practice to face the human world as it is and out of connecting with connecting very deeply with the world as it is. We come to understand this world, but also to have compassion. The lotus doesn't leave the world in order to flower. It grows up out of it. So we're not leaving this world to understand life as it is. The understanding is coming from facing how life is very deeply. And the understanding, which feels wonderful, grows out of the mud. So the tools that we use to help liberate us in this practice are mindfulness, that non-judgmental, spacious attention, and the four brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. A great teacher named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj said that, love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, and between the two my life flows. Spiritual practice is a lot about asking the question, who Who am I? And this, this short uh, phrase is all about who am I on a very deep level. Who am I? Well, I'm love. Love tells me I'm everything. Who am I? I'm nothing. Love tells me, I mean, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And can we hold that? You know, that's such a paradox, that's such a range of experience. Do you see yourself as those? Or do you see yourself as one of those and not the other? Do you like love better than nothing? Or do you like nothing better than love? (laughs) Usually we have a preference. So love is the understanding that we're not separate, that we are interconnected. And the Brahma-Vihara practice, although it includes a lot of understanding, the aim of it is really about developing this understanding of deep union with all of life, understanding that we're not dual or separate from this place of interconnectedness. And these experiences of interconnectedness are very healing. The other way that we can see ourselves through wisdom, wisdom telling us that we're nothing, is very much uh, one of the goals of the Vipassana practice. Uh, that if we look really closely at any experience at any moment of our life, uh, we'll see that it isn't solid. Uh, This is why the Buddha taught to develop a mind that clings to not, uh, because nothing is really worth being attached to. Everything's falling apart, falling apart. How come you're not laughing? (laughs) It's kind of hard for us to relax into that understanding that we're nothing, that everything's falling apart. And the loving kindness practice and the Brahma Viharas really help us uh, to develop a strength to... Uh, let go into emptiness. We tend to have this idea of emptiness as being hollow or cold, uh, something very annihilating uh, rather than liberating. Uh, And over time we can really develop a relationship to both love and understanding of equally valuing them, that we'll see that both the love and the wisdom are really interconnected uh, and very much both part of our spiritual journey. Mindfulness is meant to help us face uh, that life is a stream of change. And if you look closely, which um, we're trying to do here, we're looking at this stream of change of unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, and that we have very little control of that appearing and disappearing of the Pleasure-Pain Syndrome. And we're born into this very difficult predicament. You know, it's really a mess (laughs) if we don't face it. You know, what do we do with this predicament? And we tend to relate to this predicament of pain, pleasure, neutrality as a search for security especially if we're not aware of that that's what's happening. So the search for security or our defense system is really the mud that we're facing. Our defense system, unfortunately, isn't based on how life is, and that's why it's so much suffering. I'll be turning 46 this year, Life is this stream of change. And I went home to uh, where my family lives, and a lot of my family was there. And actually, my oldest niece has a 15-year-old girl, because my sister had her first baby at 15 years old. You know, so I'm really used to having great nieces and great nephews around. Um, But, The other day, I was with all of them, and my two-year-old great-nephew called me, Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, Grandma. (laughs) Don't call me Grandma. And then my nieces, you know, they just started kind (laughs) of (laughs) going And then my nephew-in-law said, don't worry, Michelle, you don't look so old for your age. (laughs) And it was just like, wow. (laughs) Okay, you know, this is the stream of life. It's changing. But I hadn't seen myself like that, you know. Then he called me nanny the rest of the afternoon. facing change happens on a lot of levels what is our usual protection our, our conditioned form of security is basically aversion and attachment and we've talked a lot about it but you know it's good to hear it in different ways and for the people that are coming in the mindfulness or seeing clearly and the brahmaviharas are meant to replace our old defense system of aversion and attachment. So what we see over time is that there's more and more the presence of mindfulness rather than the presence of aversion or attachment. It changes over time. What we tend to sometimes see clearly as we're practicing is our condition form of protection. So if we do the loving-kindness, for example, the condition forms of protection when we do that practice are the near and far enemies of loving-kindness. So we might see neediness or wanting rather than unconditional love or anger. Or if we do the compassion practice, which is really caring about pain, we might really see the condition uh, form of protection around pain, which might be worthlessness, or guilt, or cruelty, or shame, or grief, or sorrow, or pity. And then with, if we do mudita, or empathetic joy, we'll still see these conditioned forms of protection in the face of the joy in this world. We might see over-exuberance, or attached joy, or envy. And with equanimity, in the face of the joy and suffering in this world, which is the truth of things, the conditioned form of protection is the aversion and attachment or the indifference or denial of what's happening. Often when we see the search for security or we see our conditioned forms of protection, we tend to reject it. And that's really another layer of suffering added on to a difficult situation already. So we have to be careful of adding on more aversion to a defense system that is very fragile, to say the least, anyway. So this requires a lot of patience and understanding that we're not trying to get rid of the conditioned forms of protection. We're trying to understand them. so the lotus of awakening, that flower, grows as the mindfulness and the brahma-viharas replace the old defense system. And what often takes the greatest patience and compassion are our karmic knots. And karmic knots are really what we came in this life to work with, you know, in our life. They're the mud that we really liberate ourselves with over a lifetime. And so we really need to take time with the physical or mental, you know, deep old wirings or thought patterns. One way that we can do that with any of the places we suffer is really to understand that we can value pain. We can value pain as a form of of liberation, if we can face it. In my old days of practice at IMS, I used to do walking meditation in the upper walking room here. It's such an incredible room to walk in, barefoot. Uh, But about every other step that I would take, my, on my right foot, in the big toe, the knuckle would make this incredibly loud crack as I would walk. (laughs) And sometimes that sound of the crack would sound like the loudest sound in the world. It would echo in my heart like, oh, it's so loud. And even for me, just me, if I was there alone or with a few other people, it would be mildly irritating to me. Um, But I would have this incredible fear that it was bothering other people. And that was like a a karmic knot that I would have to face over and over as I did walking meditation, that when somebody would leave the hall, (laughs) I would be convinced it was because of my toe. You know, and I'd have this whole story about you know, this person's judgment about me and how you know, they hated me. And then, even though, you know, maybe it was. Maybe the person did leave because of aversion to the sound. Or maybe it wasn't. Uh, But the fact was, is that I had to face the aversion. And it was a mild irritation if I thought it was my own aversion. But it would become this incredible fear of rejection and fear of abandonment if it was this projection onto somebody else. And it took a long time for me to just, let that aversion come and go and I could see that it wasn't my aversion it wasn't their aversion it was just aversion so when we see something like that so clearly that it's just aversion it's not mine or someone else's that's when facing that kind of pain becomes liberating there's that lotus that comes out of not running away from the situation, but by going through it over and over. This is a quotation from Suzuki Roshi about patience in beginner's mind. After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. I love that. (laughs) After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. It's so good for us to hear that, to know that. We have this idea about how fast liberation should happen. The progress you make is always little by little, even though you try very hard. It's like going out in a stream in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there is no need to worry about progress. It's like studying a foreign language. You cannot do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you will master it. That patience that it takes uh, to go at this little by little in terms of our assessment of where we are is really important. And I find that as we go further along in the practice, any way that we can measure the practice becomes more and more fathomless. So we have to be really careful about judging the practice. One of my favorite things about this time of year is how the leaves have all gone up in flames, and now mostly we have a lot of brown leaves. On the ground, um, and we have this idea that it's autumn and that we're moving into the winter, and there's a kind of feeling of death. But if you look closely at the tree branches and look at the buds, the buds are all ready for next spring. You know, we have—we it looks like there's life moving into death, but actually, all of the life is still there just waiting for the conditions for them to pop open. And it's like that for us in the practice. It might seem that we're having the most miserable time or we'll feel lost, but actually that's the place uh, where the bud is. You know, that's the place where the liberation is going to happen. It's a very natural process the more that we get out of the way. And I, I think of it like an archaeology dig where we have a very little fine brush and we just brush away and start to see where our search for security really is. We start to see it more and more clearly and understand it. Aversion and attachment is basically, I want, I don't want. And it's really only just reacting to change. And we want so much to flow into the universe. We want so much that feeling of losing our sense of separate self. We want a loss of self when it's pleasant. And when things are painful, we have a great fear of that loss of separate self. And we have to investigate that very carefully. How is the fear of pain, how does that lead to a separate self? And it's really the fear of annihilation. As we do the archaeology dig, we discovered more of our two year old mind or the uncensored mind. An adult has a way of acting that, you know, that we really don't <laughs> have a lot of aversion or attachment when we're in the world. We censor it, we cover it up. Uh, But as we do a retreat, we start to see that our suffering is very simple. And that it's really being imprisoned by pleasure and pain. No matter what we've experienced as children, the path of a human being is to die and then be reborn. There'll be the womb, birth, infancy. And in that womb and birth, there's really no boundaries. There's no sense of separate self. It's like there's a flowing into the universe, and it's what we think we want. It's what we we yearn for. And in infancy, there's a timelessness. It's very hard for us to understand this, but we get glimpses of this on retreat a lot, where we get that sense of no past or future, and we're just in the moment. But as an infant, uh, that sense of no past or future feels permanent. There isn't the ability to reason about past or future. So say if mom or dad leaves the room, that's forever to an infant, that's permanent, and again, even if things were relatively good (laughs) for an infant, that sense of no one being there, and that endlessness of it as a child um, with with not a sense of being a solid separate self, that no one there means I'm not here, and it's terrifying, or fearful, This is a part of a poem from Pablo Neruda. It's to Sadness. Sadness, I need your black wing. For a moment, for a short lifetime, take the light from me and let me feel myself lost and miserable, trembling among the threads of twilight receiving into my soul the trembling hands of the rain. Let me feel myself lost and miserable. Hopefully we're able to be willing at times to feel that fear or terror, which is really only I don't want. Sometimes it's magnified (laughs) to a big, I don't want, or maybe it's a little, I don't want. uh. But the experience of um, not connecting to pain has this flavor of no one being there. There's no self there. Uh, But it's a no self that's totally closed. It's complete aversion. It's complete shutting down. And so, that loss of self is really being annihilated by the aversion to pain. What's so revolutionary about the mindfulness practice is that whether something is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, we're paying attention to it, we're connecting to it. And by connecting to it, we're breaking that prison cell of being caught in the pleasure and pain syndrome. So whenever we don't identify with aversion or attachment and if we have a deep intuitive experience of anatta or a loss of separate self, what we're losing is we're losing the aversion and attachment. In that moment, there's a complete understanding. It's intuitive, but it comes from being totally open to life as it is. It's like by that, instead of being totally shut down, we're totally open, and we're totally touched by the universe. It's the complete truth. And that experience is a wonderful relief. It's the opposite of that fear of annihilation. It's awakening. That complete understanding feels wonderful, because it's liberation. We're not imprisoned by pain or pleasure. It's freedom. So with mindfulness, whether something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, there's less and less fear of pain, and less and less fear of losing pleasure where we are seeing that we are replacing, we really are replacing the insecure defense system of aversion and attachment with mindfulness and the Brahma Viharas. If we truly understand this process, then why is it that we still get lost? You know, we know this. Some of us know this so well. And some of us know this pretty well. Um, And it's so interesting to see that it's just that we get lost, maybe temporarily, or it might seem for a long time, in an I want or an I don't want. And we're vulnerable then to that old security system. In these moments of being caught in our old conditioning, it's just being caught in moments of contraction. And these moments of our old conditioning, somewhere deep inside, sometimes seem preferable than to nothingness. It's like having an identity. Even identity with something really painful will seem to us more safe (laughs) than letting go into nothingness. That's why I wondered why you didn't laugh when I said, you know, letting go, everything's falling apart. Yippee! You know, it's like we don't see everybody jumping up and clapping. You know, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Yippee! You know, we usually say, love tells me I'm everything. Yippee! But this wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Well, we wonder about and that's this deep fear of the nothingness it's that fear that our separate self is going to be annihilated and really nothing gets annihilated what we lose is just aversion and attachment and it's so hard for us to understand that when we're holding on when we've let go it feels wonderful, and we totally understand it. And we're really inspired, and we keep going. We get these glimpses of awakening. We get these glimpses of that kind of understanding. And they're so powerful, they keep us going. You know, It's such an amazingly breathtaking process when you think of it. You know, how, what, what journey we're really on, what the stakes really are. So it's important to have that sense of pacing ourselves and to know that reacting is just reacting. It's no problem. So understanding replaces aversion and attachment. When we see that we understand anatta or we understand that wisdom tells me of nothing, it is really understanding that nothing is worth being attached to. It's really seeing there's nothing worth holding on to. So I just wanted to go into this fear of annihilation a little bit more. Within this fear of nothingness, or the fear of annihilation, more specifically, how does this appear in our practice? You know, it's often the fear of our own karmic knots. It's the places where we became overwhelmed by pain in the past. So try to stay with me with this, because it's, it's the little piece left with this f- around fear. When we've been overwhelmed by pain in the past, it's that sense of being annihilated by pain. And we have that fear only of that experience. It's like we couldn't open to it in the past, so we project onto the future that we're not going to be able to open to it. So any time in the past, when we couldn't open to pain, because we weren't protected by mindfulness, Whether we were children or adults, in those moments without the mindfulness or the protection, we have shut down. These are moments of close to total aversion or complete aversion. And when we feel that fear, it's the fear of nothing being there. It's the fear of no one being there. And that's what. Pablo Neruda is describing is that like trembling lostness it feels totally separate it feels like annihilation but I would really encourage you to look closely at this it's the crux of where we're not free because all it is is shutting down it's just contraction it's just like the flower closes it's okay it's okay to close. The more you know that it's okay to close, the more you're going to know that it's okay to open. It's just closing. And you can start to actually experience that in the heart, or experience it in, in the mind. as just this. And if you let it happen, <laughs> at some point, it'll unhook again, it'll open again if you can stay with it, with mindfulness. That's what's so wonderful about the process. It shifts from being such a big problem to no problem. So this feeling of shutting down is the opposite of awakening, but it's just shutting down. It's not personal. And I would encourage you to remember the flowers, you know, when flowers are, when it's uh, raining or hailing, or dark, they have that ability to close and then open. The more we understand this, we get a sense that that fear of nothingness won't hurt us because it's just fear and the nothingness is actually no aversion or attachment. It's like we get that fear that it's hollow, but it's full, it's pregnant, it's not horrible. And it takes great patience and a lot of metta or compassion to face the old deep wounds. And sometimes we carry them in the body and sometimes we carry in the mind, but they're just contracting. And the more we can let them be, they'll untangle themselves. They'll start to open with a lot of space. That's why I see the practice as so much the intention to understand, not to judge. Because when we feel a contraction in the body, or when we feel a contraction in the mind, we tend to take it so personally, uh, and we add a version onto it. It's like we try to open it, we try to mess with it and fool around with it, thinking that that's going to make it open. (laughs) It's like pulling the petals open on a system that's already (laughs) shutting for dear life. You know, what happens when you pull petals open? The flower dies. The system doesn't feel safe. But if the system says, wow, Oh, closing, closed, (laughs) care, non-judgmental attention, just to let it contract. If it feels safe enough for you to watch that, it'll feel safe enough to open. This is a whole poem by Pablo Neruda. called Fear, and it was written um, after he was diagnosed with cancer. Fear. Everyone is after me to exercise, get in shape, (laughs) play football, (laughs) rush about, even go swimming and flying. Fair enough. Everyone is after me to take it easy they all make doctor's appointments for me, eyeing me in that quizzical way. What is it? Everyone is after me to take a trip, to come in, to leave, not to travel, to die, and alternatively, not to die. It doesn't matter. Everyone is spotting oddnesses in my innards. suddenly shocked by radio-awful diagrams. I don't agree with them. Everyone is picking at my poetry with their relentless knives and forks, trying no doubt to find a fly. I am afraid. I am afraid of the whole world. I'm afraid of cold water, afraid of death. I am, as all mortals are, unable to be patient. And so in these brief passing days, I shall put them out of my mind. I shall open up and imprison myself with my most treacherous enemy, Pablo Neruda. Mm. that as we're sitting and walking, who the most treacherous enemy is. <laughs> and it's so interesting because that's what it comes down to is asking that question, well, who am I? You know, who is Pablo Neruda? Why is he the enemy? When you, when you look at all that he says there of all the people basically not helping him with his fear and him just needing to say, I'm afraid. We are afraid. <laughs> if we weren't afraid, we'd be fully enlightened, very easily. But we have that fear of the nothingness somewhere in, inside, and so we we're, if we look closely, which we're meant to do in this practice, It's really that fear of pain. And it's that facing that fear of pain that brings the lotus. Last week I went for one of my afternoon, late afternoon walks on one of my usual trails. And I wasn't as mindful in this particular point in the walk as I would have liked to have been. I was lost in thinking, probably still resenting that my nephew called me grandma. <laughs> uh, and I practically bumped into a coyote. I mean, it was like one of these odd experiences where I really have always wanted an experience like that, <laughs> but I almost <laughs> missed it. I was thinking (laughs) and it was just took practically bumping into it to see it and I I was so close to this being Uh, and this being was so present in a it's just like it connected so deeply with my eyes and mostly when I've seen coyotes they kind of have a slinky energy they kind of slink off or and meander off they don't really stay present and have a fearless energy. And this being stayed so still and so strong and fearless and yet so full of ease. It's like this ease, fearlessness. And usually in in moments like that, which actually seem to happen very quickly, I would have a mixture of fear and excitement. Sometimes... It's mostly fear, and a little bit of excitement. Uh, But at least that mix, you know, and very strong reaction in the body, like, ooh, an unusual event, you know, (laughs) to say the least. Uh, But this connection seems so natural. It was easy, seamless, light, long time looking in each other's eyes. And then after a while, I took a few steps back and then watched, connected, took a few more steps back, connected, just gradually like that till it was right on the edge of the forest, then turned and ease, connected, and then disappeared. And it was like a dream. It was so unusual. Uh, And it was so light and easy I just kept walking, and it was like, okay. (laughs) And I walked further, and something totally different happened. Life is so much full of change. I could hear these loud voices, and then I kept walking, and the voices got really loud and very threatening with each other. Uh, And I was getting close to this incredible fight, just really one of the most painful fights you could hear. Uh, And it triggered this deep, old karmic knot in me because there was a lot of family violence when I was a little child. So even if I hear it, I start feeling that energy of fear of annihilation in my body. Um, And it was so amazing to me that I could come face to face with a coyote and have no fear of this wild animal, and to hear two adults really fighting a man and a woman in the distance and have this fear come up. How how interesting. Uh, and I almost didn't walk by. I almost decided to go miles out of my way, <laughs> really, so that I didn't have to face that fear in myself and the fear and the violence that was going on outside of myself. Um, So I just noticed that fear, especially in contrast to being with a coyote, come and go. Uh, And I started sending them, in myself, compassion and and loving-kindness. And as I was walking by, this woman drove hysterically off, you know, dangerously skidding, screaming, crying, sobbing, And this man was by his house kind of trying to pretend it wasn't happening and picking up things, you know, that acting like it was all okay. And I felt this, such a depth of compassion for us all. You know, it's like we're all so scared and trying our best and seeing how much we really want to be loved and to be loved and seeing how much we want to understand life as it is, you know, and how hard it is, especially when we're struggling out in the world. And then how lucky we are if we get to do this. You know, just seeing how their lives are and how will they be able to make sense out of this. And then coming in here with us all and. Feeling how much patience it takes for us to do this practice and knowing that it's worth it. You know, knowing that awakening does happen, that the lotus does grow out of the mud, but by facing the pain and facing the mud with this intention to understand rather than to judge. Suzuki Roshi said, the result is not the point. It is our effort to improve ourselves that is valuable. There is no end to this practice. There is no end to this practice. So we do the best we can. We put in our time in the practice, and that's what it is. You just keep putting in the time. And it's a matter of remembering who we are, over and over. Who am I? Love tells me I'm everything. Who am I? Sometimes we get the answer. when Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And over and over we just keep coming back to that experiential understanding even though this process of facing life as it is and developing understanding isn't so easy, the lotus coming out of the mud, this process of awakening is worth all of the ups and downs of life. And often when we cry in life, we cry from connecting with pain. But I find in the practice that sometimes when we cry, it's because we love this awakening process so much, that we love connecting with the truth so much, even when it's painful, that we really cry. And it's crying out of gratitude because we feel so protected in this world that doesn't feel um, so easy to feel protected in. So the lotus of awakening often to me symbolizes the awakening, but also that feeling of deep protection that this intention to understand brings. Ultimately, the practice is about purifying our motivation. It's more and more just developing that intention to understand, not trying to get rid of anything, not trying to get anything, realizing it's not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress, but developing a relationship of connection mindfulness, with everything that happens in our life. It's exploring truth for the truth itself. Sometimes instead of the image of a flower, I find the image of a tree also helpful for this process of awakening and understanding it. If you've ever planted a tree, you'll know what I mean. About 13 years ago, Steve and Chandra, and I planted a mango tree in our backyard. Uh, And I used to go out the first five years of its growth and practically yell at it to grow. (laughs) And I'd be like, we're in Hawaii! I mean, why aren't you growing? (laughs) I can see if we were in Massachusetts, but we're in Hawaii. And I just kind of, you know, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you growing? Uh, (laughs) And it really, for eight years, it grew so little. And I finally started realizing that its roots were (laughs) getting established, you know, down in that earth. uh, And I couldn't see any evidence or much evidence of growth on the top. And then the next years, there was a lot of height, but still no flowers. And then the next year, next years, there were flowers, and I'd get so excited, but there'd be no fruit. (laughs) And then two years ago, we had some flowers, and we weren't home, but there were 13 mango. And I thought, you know, this is it. Now we're going to have mangoes every year. Yippee, you know. And then the next year, there was a lot of growth and a lot of flowers and no fruit. <laughs> I was sure. I was so sure there would be fruit, you know, because it happened already. You know why? Uh, and and then this year, we weren't home again. <laughs> That's really why, (laughs) my cynical mind, there was this incredible growth of the tree, like the most growth that's ever happened visibly on top. And there were very few flowers, but I hear. (laughs) There were a few mango again, but not even 13, just a few. Uh, And I have learned through this process so much, you know, that it seems so much like this practice that... There's so much growth that you'll see, like the roots going in, and the tree growing. Um, But the glimpses that we get, for them to really take hold and to feel that fruit, the tree has to grow strong to hold the fruit. And think of that as you practice, it's like all the things that happen, are leading to that the roots getting strong the branches getting strong so that we can hold the glimpses that we have with deeper and deeper understanding and love it takes great patience let's sit for a minute May we connect very deeply with our own life and others' lives with the intention to understand rather than to judge.